Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 welcome to the georgine rice show podcast this program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 kpdq we hope you enjoy the show well good afternoon and welcome to the wednesday edition of the georgine rice show james blend producing and engineering today's program pedro bartez producing and engineering in seattle and we're glad to have you with us a lot of news going on in fact The big news story of the day, at least here in the U.S., is House Republicans elected a speaker, Mike Johnson, ending weeks of uncertainty. I have to tell you, I was very impressed with his address to the uh, uh, the House of Representatives after officially being appointed speaker of the House. Uh, He is a serious Christian man, and I I would highly urge you if you have the opportunity. In fact, we're considering sharing that with you tomorrow on the program. But to hear what he had to say, it was very hopeful he made reference to scripture in an entirely appropriate and uh, measured way that um, had both sides of the aisle standing in applause. Well, Representative Mike Johnson, the fourth House Republican to be nominated for the speakership this month, secured the necessary 217 votes to be actually elected to that post this afternoon, ending weeks of uncertainty without the uh, within the caucus. In a Wednesday afternoon election against minority leader Hakeem Jeffries, whom Democrats unanimously rallied behind, Johnson garnered 220 votes compared to his competitors, 209 falling short. Well, the Republican speaker nominee became the fourth contestant in the running against Jeffries hours after minority whip Tom Emmer dropped his bid. In fact, I was at an event last night in uh, Vancouver. I just happened to glance at my phone to look at the headlines and I saw that uh, majority whip um, Tom Emmer had dropped out. I was flabbergasted. I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Seriously, are we ever going to have a speaker of the House? Anyway, he dropped out. Um, Dropped his bid on Tuesday afternoon. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, Minority Majority Leader Steve Scalise, the two previous nominees for the presiding officer role, also failed to secure enough support for their party, or rather from their party. And since Representative Kevin McCarthy was removed from speakership over the three weeks ago, the conference repeatedly struggled to unite behind any candidate that could meet or surpass the 217 threshold. Well, there are only 221 Republicans in the lower chamber That means every candidate couldn't afford to lose more than four votes. Johnson only lost one. Uh, Before turning the floor over on uh, for the Tuesday vote, Representative Elise Stefanik, chairman of the House Republican Conference, said Johnson was the best candidate to become the next speaker. As we live in perilous times and the American people are hurting, House Republicans and Speaker Mike Johnson will never give up, she added amid Republican applause. Today is the day to get this done. While uh, rising to... uh, Nominate Jeffries as the Democrat candidate once again, Representative Pete Aguilar. He criticized the Republican nominee for being an ally of the former president, calling Johnson the most important architect of the Electoral College objections to the 2020 presidential election results. Now, this is it really strikes me as rather peculiar because the uh, Democrats following the 2016 election spent the entire term of that president um, questioning the validity of that uh, of that election. So it's rather rich to hear it uh, now suggested that this speaker is disqualified 
uh, or unqualified because of his questions about the 2020 election. Well, Johnson and over 100 other Republicans in an effort to challenge President Biden's electoral victory signed an amicus brief in support of a Texas lawsuit that sought to overturn the election results in four key states, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and and Wisconsin. The suit asked the Supreme Court to delay the electoral vote in the four states until investigations into the voting rules could be made. The highest court ultimately rejected the legal effort, and that was that. Well, since the beginning of October, the House remained paralyzed without an acting speaker. The inaction came at a time of a crisis when the House called on uh, Congress to approve a $100 billion U.S. aid package for Israel and Ukraine and a bunch of other stuff thrown in, which Republicans are suggesting needs to be pulled apart. And that's a whole other story. Representative Patrick McHenry formerly served as the Speaker pro tempore, uh, which um, primarily gave him the authority to preside over the recent elections. And that's about it. Well, the House also faces a funding deadline on the 17th of November when congressmen must pass 12 spending bills before the federal government partially shuts down. Congress uh, narrowly avoided a shutdown last month. They approved a 45-day continuing resolution that keeps the government funded until mid-November at levels from the previous uh, speaker. Unlike Emmer and the other GOP candidates, uh, Johnson received enough support from his partisan uh, colleagues to win the speakership. Speaking with National Review late Tuesday evening, uh, Bob Good, a representative Good from Virginia, one of the eight Republicans who voted to oust McCarthy on the 3rd, called Johnson a person of high character, of impeccable integrity, admired and respected in the conference, end quote. Well, the House Budget Chairman Jody Arrington, who gave Johnson's uh, nominating speech Tuesday night, uh, said, I'm just pleased that we have a person of this caliber and character uh, to lead this conference at such a critical and consequential time in our country. Representative John Duarte also believed that Johnson was the right man for the job in uniting the conference and getting the House back in session, saying, I think there's going to be an acquiescence to the speaker. I think there's going to be a functioning within the conference. I think we're going to get uh, Congress rolling. Um, we're going to pass a lot of legislation and we're we're all looking uh, forward to getting back to work. So I do think there'll be a cohesive, a cohesion rather within the conference in terms of functioning through this legislative session. Well, I hope he's uh, more right than wrong. There's been significant division and the Republicans have looked pretty uh, weak over these last three weeks. Uh, as I mentioned, if you have the opportunity to hear his speech before both the Democrats and Republicans after accepting the speaker's role, um, it's definitely worth hearing. And we're we're thinking about maybe running that tomorrow. It's rather long, so it would have to span two segments, but we'll talk about it. And who knows, we might uh, share that with you tomorrow. Meanwhile, Representative Dean Phillips of Minnesota is expected on Friday to announce a long shot Democratic primary challenge against President Biden, according to people familiar with the lawmakers plans. Well, the launch of his Democratic campaign for the White House will come in New Hampshire on the last day for candidates to file to place their names on the ballot in that state, uh, famed first-in-the-nation presidential primary. The 54-year-old millionaire businessman and co-founder of a gelato company turned three-term House Democrat is expected to hold an event on the plaza outside New Hampshire's State House in Concord and to uh, file for the primary inside the building in the Secretary of State's office, according to those familiar with the plan. He hasn't actually scheduled a time with my office. I know that he has scheduled some space on the front lawn of the State House, the New Hampshire Secretary of State 
uh, said uh, in response to rumors. Scanlon said of a primary challenge by Phillips against the 80-year-old Biden, I think that would be a healthy thing for the New Hampshire primary. Well, a video posted on social media on Tuesday showed a bus decorated with Dean Phillips for president signage traveling along an Ohio highway. That tells you something. Phillips, who represents a district in suburban Minneapolis, recently spoke by phone with long-term um, uh, longtime New Hampshire Democrat Party Chair Ray Buckley. Buckley shared that, of course, we would be gracious hosts. It is our tradition, but both polls and grassroots interactions in New Hampshire reveal a high level of support for President Biden among the likely voters. It would be a tough challenge for Phillips or anyone, be sure, uh, it will be that. Well, there's no question about it, but of course there has been no challenger up to this point. So we'll see what happens. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the FBI maintained more than 40 confidential human sources on various criminal matters related to the Biden family, including Joe Biden, dating back to his time as vice president. That's according to information obtained by this by Senator Chuck Grassley's office. The confidential human sources provided criminal information to the FBI relating to Joe Biden, James Biden and Hunter Biden. Those confidential human sources were managed by multiple FBI field offices across the nation, including the FBI's Seattle field office. But Grassley learned that an FBI task force within the Washington field office sought to, in some cases, successfully shut down reporting and information from those sources by falsely discrediting the information as foreign disinformation. Well, that effort caused investigative activity to cease. However, despite those efforts by the FBI task force, Grassley said in at least one instance, a confidential human source and its information had been vetted by multiple U.S. attorneys' offices, which found no hits to known uh, sources of Russian disinformation. Well, the revelations were laid out in a letter that Grassley wrote to Attorney General Merrick Garland and FBI Director Christopher Wray late Tuesday night. The letter was exclusively obtained by Fox News Digital. Well, based on the information provided... Over a period of years, he writes, by multiple credible whistleblowers, there appears to be an effort within the Justice Department and FBI to shut down investigative activity relating to the Biden family, Grassley wrote to Garland and Ray. Such decisions point to significant political bias infecting the decision-making of not only the Attorney General and FBI Director, but also line agents and prosecutors, he wrote. He added, our republic cannot survive such a political infection, and you have an obligation to this country to clear the air. Well, Grassley has been investigating for years information, records, allegations from multiple Justice Department whistleblowers that indicate there is and has been an effort among certain Justice Department and FBI officials to improperly delay and stop full and complete investigative activity into the Biden family, including, but not limited to, FD. 1023s referencing the Biden family. Well, that is an F, um, FBI generated form used to document confidential human source reporting. He goes on as essential questions that must be answered is this. Did the FBI investigate the information or shut it down? Grassley wrote, noting that if those sources were improperly shut down, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for the FBI. Well, on critical FD 1023 in question, one of them, uh, was first reported um, earlier this year. That form included reporting from a highly credible confidential human source who alleged a criminal bribery scheme between then-Vice President Joe Biden, his son Hunter Biden, and the founder and CEO of Ukrainian natural gas firm Burisma Holdings. 
Well, the form uh, detailed multiple uh, meetings and conversations the source had with the top executive of of Burisma Holdings over the course of several years. Starting in 2015, Hunter Biden at the time sat on the board of Burisma. Well, it goes on from there, and I won't bore you with more details, but what they are alleging is that there are uh, more than 40 confidential human sources uh, that have not been uh, followed up on and were simply uh, quieted. And despite the fact that for the last three weeks there hasn't been a Speaker of the House, these investigations into the Biden family apparently will continue as promised. Well, let's see. Representative Jamal Bowman, the Democrat out of New York, a name you're probably not so familiar with. He's been charged for allegedly pulling a fire alarm in a House of Representatives building during the government shutdown threat of September the 30th. You might remember him from that incident. Well, he was charged with a false fire alarm on Wednesday afternoon and his arraignment is scheduled for Thursday morning. An arrest warrant filed by U.S. Capitol Police Supervisory Special Agent Joseph McAtee says police were notified at 12.05 p.m. that a fire alarm had been pulled inside the Cannon office building on the second floor. Now, when Bowman was interviewed by Capitol Police agents, he told them uh, he responded yes when asked if he knew anything about the fire alarm. The Democratic representative said he was in a rush because votes were being called, adding that the door was usually open. Uh, Bowman, according to the arrest warrant, told the agents he saw the nearby door with a sign that said emergency exit only pushed to open. Uh, So he pushed the door and pulled the lever next to it, which must have been the alarm, the warrant says. Bowman advised that usually when votes are called, all doors are open and that door is usually open. The second floor door leading to Independence Avenue. The uh, defendant uh, further stated that the door was Um, A usual door he uses. The defendant advised that he then went to a a Democrat meeting and a vote at the Capitol. Then the House sergeant at arms contacted him, end quote. Well, Bowman told the agent he didn't intend to pull the fire alarm and didn't intend to disrupt or obstruct a congressional proceeding, then stated that he needed to get a lawyer and wouldn't make any further statements. Well, the agent wrote in the arrest warrant. There was a sign next to the door that said emergency exit only, adding that the fire alarm had letters that said fire push in pulled push in pull down. Security camera footage reviewed by the Capitol Police allegedly revealed that Bowman attempted to open both doors before pulling the fire alarm and then walked away. Bowman told uh, Fox News after being charged, he's happy for the quick resolution, adding that he has a plea agreement with prosecutors. So there'll be something tomorrow, but there's a plea agreement. Well, according to Bowman, the uh, plea agreement requires him to pay a thousand dollar fine and stay away, stay out of trouble for three months. It was a lapse in judgment, if you will. It wasn't a conscious decision to do something wrong, Bowman said. And of course, that's between he and God. But this is the latest on that incident. At the time of the incident, Bowman's chief of staff wrote on X that Congressman Bowman did not realize he would trigger a building alarm, even though it said that's precisely what would happen. As he was rushing to make an urgent vote, the congressman regrets any confusion. Adam Sabes wrote um, on X. Uh, in any event, he says he uses the door all the time, but it is an emergency exit and the fire anyway. They'll sort it out. There's a plea agreement. No one will be held accountable. Well, Israel has agreed to delay its impending ground invasion of Gaza until the U.S. can establish air defenses to protect U.S. troops throughout the region. Is it a pretext? Or um, I mentioned yesterday that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and his military uh, officials are somewhat frustrated at, by the delay. 
But the Pentagon has requested that Israel hold off until they can deploy nearly a dozen air defense systems to the region, the Wall Street Journal first reported. The missile deployments, which are expected to be completed in the coming days, open-ended, are intended to shield U.S. troops serving in Iraq, Syria, Kuwait, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates from enemy rockets and missiles. Well, according to a a recent report from the journalists uh, for Yeshiva World News, Israel has now scheduled their ground invasion. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says we have scheduled a time for the ground operation to begin. This decision was made with IDF Chief of Staff and the War Cabinet. Why the status of humanitarian aid available to Gazans and the release of hostages are still national concerns. Officials here, they've stated that the threats to U.S. troops take precedence. And according to U.S. military and other officials, hostile militant groups throughout the region are expected to ramp up attacks on U.S. forces once the incursion begins. And we've already um, heard reports that, in fact, U.S. troops have been targeted. We find that... um, Report here, more than 20 service members have reported minor injuries so far as a result of the Iran-backed attacks on U.S. positions in Iraq and Syria. That's according to the Defense Department. Uh, they've been a few. There have been a few reports of TBIs as well as some minor injuries from service members. One official said, using the acronym for traumatic brain injuries. However, the injured service members have all been returned to duty, added the official who, like others interviewed for the story, had granted uh, was granted anonymity because uh, they were not authorized to speak publicly. Well, more than 20 service members have reported minor injuries so far as a result of more than a dozen Iran-backed attacks on U.S. positions in Iraq and Syria since the 17th of October, according to the Defense Department. So we'll uh, continue to follow that story, uh, but apparently the time uh, and circumstances of that ground invasion have been set. But from our vantage point, we're being told it's being um, delayed until U.S. uh, can deploy air defense systems to protect U.S. military in the region. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We were talking just before the break about the fact that a delay has been approved, but a date has been set, apparently. But Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, in an address to his nation, promised that the delayed ground invasion of Gaza will be soon and said that when the time does come, the Israeli military will exact the highest price from these murderers for the October 7th terror attack in which at least 1,400 Israelis were killed. The unprecedented infiltration into the country, the deadliest terror attack in the country's history, provoked a war that is now in its 19th day. We will never forget the 1,400 brothers and sisters who were slaughtered in cold blood and fought heroically to the death against their human animals, Netanyahu said, announcing there will be a national day of mourning for the victims. The prime minister also promised there will be an investigation into the security failures that led to Hamas catching Israel off guard on the Jewish holiday of Simchat Torah. Uh, This failure will be investigated to the end. Everyone has to respond to that and give answers, including me. But all of this is after the war, he went on to say. So there will be a ground incursion. Many were beginning to wonder whether or not that would happen at all, given the delay. But apparently uh, decisions have already been made. It's only a matter of time, giving us time, of course, to pray. Well, former President Trump has been fined $10,000 for violating a gag order that prevented him from speaking about those overseeing his civil fraud trial in New York. In an unexpected twist, the former president was 
sworn in as a witness to respond to allegations he violated the gag order against him in his fraud case by commenting about a court secretary. Well, the former president slowly ascended the stand, straightened his blue jacket when sitting down. He took an oath to tell the truth and turned his attention toward the judge. Judge Arthur N. Gorin asked whether uh, Donald Trump made the reported comment that he is a very partisan judge with a person who is very partisan sitting alongside him, perhaps even more partisan than he is. Trump nodded, responding, yes. To whom were you referring? And Gorin asked, you and Cohen, Trump replied. Are you sure that you didn't mean the person on the other side, my principal law clerk? And Gorin asked, yes, I'm sure, Trump said. Well, the former president, when prompted, additionally commented that he believes the judge's clerk is very biased against us and explained that he took down the previous truth social post that sparked the gag order. Well, the gag order was originally imposed after the former president's truth social account derided the clerk as Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's girlfriend and included personally identifying information about her. And Gorin ordered Trump to take down the post and it was removed from Truth Social as commanded. However, the post remained on Trump's campaign website for an additional 17 days. When the judge was informed of that, he imposed a $5,000 fine on Trump for violating the order. Well, Trump said on the stand that he believes one of the political groups or PACs left it up. But I didn't know that they were going to do that. Well, through his uh, short testimony, uh, Trump maintained a glum face when he trailed back to his seat. He looked at the floor. Once Trump was seated and Gorin issued his order to fine Trump $10,000 on the libel, um, the liberal side, as the uh, tri- the uh, trier of fact, I find that the witness is not credible, and Gorin said. Well, Trump's attorney objected to the order, suggesting the judge presupposed some ill motive of Trump on Trump's behalf. Well, Keis and uh, Trump's other attorney also claim that the closeness of Ngoran's clerk to him was, has essentially made her a second judge in the case. The attorney previously raised issues with Ngoran and his clerk's whispered sidebars, which sometimes included eye rolling or sights of exasperation. Well, Ngoran rejected their objections and their assertions about the clerk's role in his decision making. I make the final decisions, Ngoran said. So the former president, $10,000 son. The liberal side, another fine. That's how it seems to be going. Well, hundreds of individuals accused of violent crimes were reportedly freed on their own recognizance in Spokane as officials are trying to crack down on criminal activity. I'm not sure how the two things fit together, but the Spokane Review on Sunday detailed cases in which three men were among the numerous others accused of such crimes, noting they were freed from jail once they promised to reappear in court. They promised our legal system has not only been weaponized to defeat political opponents, it's also collapsing, causing crime rates to soar because so-called progressive notions always fail. They miserably fail. Well, that's what one observer suggests about this um, new practice. Records obtained by the Spokane Review show that people accused of violent crimes such as rape, molesting children, making death threats, assaults and vehicular homicide were set free on their own recognizance. Uh, This has happened 665 times in Spokane County from the 1st of January 2021 to September 30th of this year. Washington law says everyone arrested and accused of a crime is presumed innocent and subject to release, but judges have to consider the scope of what's in the law. That consideration is subjective and up to the discretion of the individual judge. 
Well, one of the cases the newspaper detailed was the Daniel Silva uh, case, who allegedly slashed a co-worker in the face with a handsaw. However, officials released him from jail a few hours later without bond. In July, KREM-TV reported that the crime rate in Washington state has grown with one of the biggest being property crime. Crime rates in the state saw an alarming increase encompassing various, various crime categories, as reported by Washington's Association of Sheriffs and Police Chiefs. The numbers have left Spokane County Sheriff John Knowles unsurprised, pointing to policy changes as a key factor behind this surge in reported crime. Well, Spokane County Sheriff John Knowles, he cited two policy changes when speaking on the issue. Firstly, a reduction in the state prison population has resulted in many repeat felons spending less than a year in jail, and some never make it to prison at all. Sheriff Knowles expressed concern over this development, saying, We now have a jail where literally every time we book someone in, someone has to come out and on the other side. Full on, 14% of the people we book never see the inside of a jail cell. They're released before they ever spend a day in jail, end quote. Well, secondly, the state legislature has lowered minimum sentences for many crimes, leading to increased leniency in sentencing. And as a result, people with multiple repeat felonies are facing reduced consequences. It's important to note that one third of Seattle residents considered leaving the area to move somewhere else. One reason being the crime plaguing uh, plaguing area, according to the Seattle Times. Well, after hearing about the jail release data, the city council uh, president, Lori Kinnear, she noted it's not just a Spokane problem. That's true. Every state that has so-called progressive leadership is struggling with the same issues. There are states that choose conservative leadership who are not experiencing those difficulties, at least to the degree that the blue states are. For those living in Spokane, a 30-minute drive east of I-90 could shed some light on the problem. Idaho generally approaches social issues from a conservative point of view, she points out. Washington does not. Kinnear said that when judges make a ruling, they're following the guidelines the state sets. They're not pulling stuff out of thin air. Well, Kinnear made it clear she doesn't agree with more than 600 people accused of violent crime being released on their own recognizance. Probably no one would publicly admit to wanting 600 people accused of violent crimes released on their recognizance. The first step she would advocate for is separating the populations being held in jail and treating alleged offenders based on what they're accused of. One example, someone in their own home smoking methamphetamine is a lot different than someone who attempted to strangle their spouse. Good point. If Spokane County builds two new jails, Kinnear said, there must be a treatment center. There has to be a diversion program. There have to be solutions after someone is behind bars. People who stay in jail probably don't make bail. They'll be typically lower income, minority, homeless, and so on, acknowledging that that is the case. Well, a law-abiding society is not always situational. Relativism is the basis of the so-called progressivism and answering these larger questions that have real um, real life, real world consequences in terms of the life and safety of residents um, must be resolved and resolved soon if we are going to maintain a civilized society. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Just winding our way through some of the day's news stories. Well, a 21-year-old female detransitioner who underwent hormone therapy as a teenager is suing the American Academy of Pediatrics for allegedly pushing her youth gender transition and lying about the dangers of such medical interventions. Isabel Ayala 
is accusing the Progressive Professional Medical Association, infamous for endorsing so-called gender-affirming care for minors, of civil conspiracy, fraud, and medical malpractice, according to a lawsuit filed on Monday and obtained by the Daily Wire. Well, the AAP, the lawsuit claims, knowingly misled the public on youth gender transition by releasing and circulating a 2018 policy statement endorsing the affirmative model for gender dysphoria. The statement lacks sufficient evidence to back the safety and efficacy of the model. We Ayala, she also named her doctors as defendants for testing the radical new approach to patients like her. The physicians are Dr. Rafferty, Dr. Forcier, Dr. Gibson, Dr. Morris, Dr. Allen, Dr. Schurer, and Dr. Wagner, as well as Lifespan Physician Group. Well, the model that specifically Rafferty and Forcier applied included immediate, no questions asked, affirming of a child's desired gender and quickly placing them on a conveyor belt of life-altering puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones and or experimental surgeries, the lawsuit said. Ayala had a history of mental health struggles and pre-existing psychological comorbidities such as anxiety, depression, autism, ADHD, PTSD from a sexual assault at a young age. And despite this, Rafferty and Forcier hurried her along the path of medicalization for her gender confusion, the lawsuit says. Well, after a single brief meeting, a single meeting, Rafferty recommended Ayala for testosterone, but her mother refused to um, give her consent. In a subsequent meeting, Rafferty and his team persuaded Ayala's mother to allow the prescription by stating it was the only medical avenue to save her child from suicide. This is a tactic that's often used. Multiple doctors bamboozled Ayala, the lawsuit said, into believing that taking testosterone would ease her mental anguish, restore her physical health. But only six months after the first uh, dose of testosterone, Ayala attempted suicide. Yet the hormone treatments continued for the duration of her time seeing these doctors until she left Rhode Island for Florida and decided to go off the testosterone. Ayala had suffered many physical complications from the drugs injections, the lawsuit says. Among the issues and ailments were atrophy of her female organs. The extensive use of testosterone produced that excessive facial and body hair. Uh, compromised bone structure and ongoing mental issues, anxiety, depression, and regret. She is unsure whether her fertility has been irre- uh, irreversibly compromised, and she's seen uh, since developed an autoimmune disease that only the males in her family have a history of. Ayala is the first detransitioner lawsuit in America so far to name the AAP as a defendant. Not the only lawsuit, but the first to name AAP as a defendant. The AAP, the American Association of Pediatrics, the lawsuit said, ditched the consensus scientifically supported approach known as watchful waiting. In that strategy, gender confused children are given counseling and psychotherapy to help them navigate the disruptive parts of puberty instead of being prescribed cross sex hormones, puberty blockers and procedures. In other words, this was an experiment that's being uh, conducted on lots of young people. When AAP, when the uh, committee called the LGBT Health and Wellness Committee started drafting the affirming model policy, they discovered that the model was not supported by scientific research. Yet they persisted anyway and realized the policy because of this of their um, progressive ideological commitments, the lawsuit said. Well, the plaintiff finds the inescapable conclusion that the gender policy statement was knowingly created and published as fraudulent within the obvious intent of misleading the public as to the evidentiary backing for its radical policy and the dangers and risks associated with the treatments 
it promotes. So we will certainly follow this uh, lawsuit with great interest. And of course, these things take a very long period of time before they're resolved, but we will uh, attempt to follow it. Well, with all the chaos and heartbreaking loss of life around the world today, do you notice the Treasury Department drop a final uh, financial bomb, if you will? The deficit for fiscal year 2023 was $1.7 trillion, growing 23% in a single year as the Treasury used $879 billion just to service the federal debt. But Bidenomics means the worst is yet to come, and multi-trillion dollar deficits are the new normal. Well, the impetus for these massive deficits is federal government spending, which tipped the scales at $6.1 trillion last year. Government receipts, meanwhile, were $4.4 trillion, woefully short of the $5 trillion previously forecasted. Well, a slowing economy and counterproductive tax increases were key drivers behind the $457 billion drop in receipts from the prior fiscal year. Yet even these reduced revenues wouldn't have resulted in a balanced budget if President Biden had simply allowed spending to return to its pre-pandemic level. Instead, Treasury outlays are up 38 percent today compared to pre-pandemic times. Well, that's why it's so deceptive for the Treasury Department to have recently announced that the deficit is one trillion dollars lower than when Biden took office. Elevated spending levels in 2020 shouldn't have been one time emergency measures or rather should have been, but the administration institutionalized $6 trillion budgets by simply replacing pandemic-era outlays with the Biden agenda. Uh, President of Macro Mavens joined uh, a discussion on the subject to discuss the U.S. Treasury's $1 trillion debt deluge and its anticipated impact on the economy as well as the future. Even worse, the $1.7 trillion deficit in the last fiscal year was really a $2 trillion deficit, she points out. It was reduced only in a technical sense by $300 billion when the Supreme Court blocked the president's student loan handout scheme. Well, the Treasury was merely reallocated uh, that money to be spent in fiscal year 2024 because the administration is bent on achieving its unconstitutional student loan bailout. In other words, the unfunded spending has merely been moved from one ledger column to another, one fiscal year to another. Of that $300 billion, tens of billions have already been allocated to selective student loan bailouts, while the rest will fund a broader bailout beginning next summer, known as the Save Repayment Plan, and in run around the Supreme Court's ruling against the administration. But just looking at the spending that's officially included in the last fiscal year is terrifying. It's resulted in a truly unprecedented level of federal debt. Now more than $33.5 trillion. The breakneck, uh, the breakneck rather, pace of borrowing is increasing among uh, daily uh, Almost daily, I should say, with the Treasury borrowing $500 billion just in the first three weeks of the current fiscal year, which began October 1st. $500 billion, first three weeks. As the federal debt and the interest rate rise, the cost of servicing the debt has completely exploded, eclipsing all but two line items of the Treasury report, the Social Security Administration and the Department of Health and Human Services. Interest payments even surpassed all military spending in the bloated Department of Defense budget of $103 billion. And despite this being an obvious unsustainable path, the administration is doubling down, promising more government spending and multi-trillion dollar deficits forever. Financial markets are beginning to wake up to the fact that the Treasury eventually won't be able to pay its debts, and that day may arrive sooner 
than later. Consequently, investors are demanding higher yields when lending money to the Treasury, which is increasing the cost of servicing the debt. As massive deficits continue growing the debt, gross interest outlays are exploding as new debt is issued at higher interest rates. And the icing on the cake is that the Treasury Department doesn't actually pay off debt when it matures. It simply issues new debt to pay off the old, along with the interest uh, that goes along with it. Trillions of dollars in existing debt at low interest rates will roll over at rates two to three times um, higher within the next year. Well, this all combines into a debt-death spiral that will cost the Treasury, and therefore the taxpayer, over $1 trillion just in interest during the current fiscal year, which won't reduce the debt by a penny. Nevertheless, the Treasury recently praised what shouldn't, uh, what should have been described as a horrific annual report as proof that Bidenomics is working. I hope you'll look a little bit uh, closer. By the way, two-thirds of Americans disapprove of the economy today, so perhaps there's hope for us all. We've got news and uh, coming up at the top of the hour, traffic in the Portland area. Stay with us. We've got more to come in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. 93.9 KPDQ and 820 AM, The Word. Well, we're continuing to take a look at some of the day's headlines. A conservative watchdog group is calling for billionaire Democratic mega donor and LinkedIn co-founder Reed Hoffman's ouster from the Microsoft Board of Directors. Well, you're probably wondering why. Well, the National Legal and Policy Center is a shareholder in the company and argues that Hoffman's political activism, as well as his past association with a convict, uh, convicted sex offender, Jeffrey Epstein, harmed the company's image. And while the National Legal and Policy Center respects Mr. Hoffman's right to make political donations, as Microsoft shareholders, we believe, and I'm quoting, his partisan political activities damaged the firm's reputation. That's a letter sent this month to Paul Chesser, director of the NLPC Corporate Integrity Project, to Sandra Peterson of the Microsoft Legal Independent Director and Chair of the Governance Nominating Committee. Wow, that was a lot. Well, Hoffman co-founded LinkedIn in 2003, sold it to Microsoft in 2016 for $26.2 billion and joined the Microsoft Board of Directors. One of the two Israeli hostages released yesterday by Hamas is now speaking out about her time as a captive of the Palestinian terrorist group, describing a spider web of tunnels underneath the Gaza Strip where she was fed only one meal per day. The 85-year-old was taken from Israel on the 7th of October alongside her 83-year-old husband, Obed, who still remains held inside the Gaza Strip. Uh, Lifchitz uh, says civilians beat her once she was uh, bought brought into the Gaza area before being moved into an extensive tunnel system where Hamas did provide hostages with some medicine and hygiene supplies. She said that people assigned to guard her had told her that uh, they were people who believed in the Quran and wouldn't hurt us. Uh, also noting how she and uh, other hostages were fed one meal a day of cheese and cucumber. That's according to the Associated Press. Well, prior to their capture from their home in near Oz Kibbutz, near the Israeli-Gaza border, she and her husband were activists who helped sick Gazans receive medical care in Israel. Her grandson, Daniel Lifshitz, said on uh, said speaking to Reuters, they are human rights activists, peace activists for all their lives, he said. 
Uh, was quoted as saying, for more than a decade, they took sick Palestinians from the Gaza Strip, not from the West Bank, from the Gaza Strip every week from the Erez border to the hospitals in Israel to get treatment for their disease, for cancer, for anything, he added. But in war, apparently there are no distinctions. Well, the United Auto Workers have expanded their strike In its effort to press for more concessions from big three automakers on Monday, the United Auto Workers expanded their strike that has lasted over a month. The the latest workers to walk off the job are from the Stellantis assembly plant in Sterling Heights, Michigan. Roughly 6,800 workers are now striking at that plant, which produces the company's best-selling vehicles, Ram 1500 truck. The UAW claims that of the big three, Stellantis has presented the worst offer in the ongoing collective bargaining negotiations. Thus far, across the big three, 40,000 workers are now striking, making up 26% of the three companies' workforce. Well, on Monday, the Consortium of Independent Journalism filed a lawsuit against the federal government and NewsGuard, the self-appointed arbiter of trustworthy news media organizations. Consortium News alleges that the U.S. government has conspired with NewsGuard in order to defame non-legacy news outlets and in so doing is in violation of the First Amendment. The suit says that NewsGuard and the government are engaged in a pattern and practice of labeling, stigmatizing and defaming American media organizations that oppose or dissent from American foreign and defense policy, particularly as to Russia and Ukraine. We in our humble shop can attest to NewsGuard's upper or rather underhand and disingenuous rating system that is designed not to ensure factual accuracy and what is reported, but to be used as a mechanism to downgrade and ultimately silence news outlets whose viewpoints it doesn't like. Viewpoint discrimination is actually what NewsGuard engages in, not news reporting accuracy. We'll follow that lawsuit filed earlier this week to see where it lands. Well, the clock is ticking for Representative Dean Phillips of Minnesota, who's seriously mulling a 2024 Democratic primary challenge against President Biden. Phillips last week missed a deadline to place his name on the ballot in Nevada, which is holding its presidential primary on the 6th of February in the Democratic Party's nominating calendar. Well, now the millionaire businessman and co-founder of a gelato company turned three-term House Democrat has until the end of business on Friday to place his name on the ballot in New Hampshire, which for a century has held the first primary along the road to the White House. As of late last week, neither Phillips or anyone else from his team has reached out to the New Hampshire Secretary of State's office to schedule a time to file. Senator Bernie Sanders, the uh, independent from Vermont, transferred $75,000 from his campaign's coffers to his wife and stepson's nonprofit during the third quarter, according to Fox News Digital. Well, the money from the senator's campaign went to the Sanders Institute on the 8th of August, according to its recently released Federal Election Commission filings. The cash follows the $200,000 that the committee sent to the nonprofit earlier this year. The institute was established by Sanders' wife, Jane, and his stepson, David Driscoll, six years ago as a think tank to elevate progressive mouthpieces. However, the group has appeared to perform very little work while paying Driscoll six figures worth of compensation. Portions of a Southern California school district's parental notification policy will remain blocked. That's after a judge granted a preliminary injunction to the state of California to stop the measure the state says discriminates against LGBTQ students. Chino Valley Unified School District passed the policy in July. 
A part of the policy requires its schools to notify parents if their child identifies as transgender. California Attorney General Rob Bonta, he immediately sued CVUSD over the policy, saying it unconstitutionally discriminates against LGBTQ students and violates their privacy rights. Because as minors, they're entitled to be independent from their parents' oversight, scrutiny and care, apparently. San Bernardino County Superior Court Judge Michael Sachs said part of the policy was unconstitutional. While litigation is ongoing, he ruled the district cannot require staff to tell parents when a student asks to be identified or treated as a gender other than their biological sex. The ruling also blocks parents from being notified if a student wants to access sex-segregated facilities or participate in athletic teams. However, Sachs, the judge, denied the state's request to block a part of the policy, which says staff must notify parents if their child wants to change information in their official and unofficial school records. Elected politicians' stance on Israel's war against Hamas may push some Democrat-leaning Jewish American voters to reconsider their choices in the 2024 elections, experts say. Division among Democrats over the war is likely to have a meaningful effect on the presidential race, down to local congressional races, insiders and several Jewish voters said. Multiple House Democrats, including Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, and other members of the far-left squad, have taken aim at President Biden and Democrat leadership over their support for Israel. Jake Novak, the former media director at the Israeli consulate in New York, told Fox News Digital, I am not seen, I have not seen this kind of a shift, at least to a um, discussed shift. Obviously, no one's voted yet since 1980. In 1980, Jimmy Carter still won a majority of the Jewish vote, but it was a very, it was way down from 1976. There were a lot of Jewish voters who were disappointed in him, end quote. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, back momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. The Israeli Defense Forces has the green light to enter Gaza to eradicate the Islamic terrorists responsible for murdering 1,400 Israelis in a terrorist attack. But the update is there's been an agreement to withhold that strike until further notice, allowing the United States to enter the country with humanitarian aid. More on that in the days ahead. The U.S. Embassy in Beirut is urging Americans to evacuate Lebanon. The U.S. Embassy there is warning Americans to leave the country after issuing a do-not-travel advisory earlier in the week. The warning comes as Iranian-backed Hezbollah continue to launch rockets into um, Israeli civilians. The official government of Lebanon is controlled by the group. Uh, at least 20 rockets have been launched so far, and that's uh, out, de- out of date, from southern Lebanon into Israel within the last few minutes, said one reporter standing on the premises some days ago. Well, the House GOP is looking to subpoena former Iran special envoy Robert Malay. The House Republicans are preparing that subpoena. Uh, of the State Department for documents about the suspension of Robert Malay and compel testimony from the former Iran special envoy after he, his security clearance was quietly revoked earlier this year. The House Oversight Committee is requesting information and a, a personnel interview with Malay to determine the circumstances under which he was placed to, on unpaid leave. The Oversight Committee is also asking for information about a security clearance granted to one of Malay's advisors who participated in a program with Tehran's foreign ministry to influence nuclear negotiations with the U.S. 
A UC Davis assistant professor sparked an outcry and demands for her firing over inflammatory comments appearing to threaten Zionist journalists and their families amid the Israeli-Hamas war. Uh, Gemma DeCristo, an assistant professor of American studies at the University of California, Davis, wrote in a post last week on X that Zionist journalists uh, spread propaganda and misinformation. She followed that up with an an apparent threat to those journalists and their families, as well as three different emojis, a knife, an axe and blood droplets. Well, Heritage Foundation uh, fellow Jason Bedrick points out that UC Davis uh, should think it's um, should think again as to whether it's appropriate that one of their faculty advisors is publicly threatening to murder Jews at their homes and their children at their schools. Well, the FP- FTC is planning to consider reinstating net neutrality regulation. The Federal Communications Commission voted to consider a proposed rule to reestablish the Obama era net neutrality rules. The FCC voted three to two on Thursday in favor of a notice of proposed rulemaking that would reestablish the FCC's authority to pursue net neutrality, which is the requirement that Internet service providers do not discriminate based on the source or destination of data by classifying providers as common carriers under under Title II of the Communications Act, meaning they could be regulated more heavily as if they were telecommunications providers. Now that the commission voted to approve the notice of proposed rulemaking, the public will get a chance to comment on the proposal. After that, the agency will read and consider feedback from the public in crafting a final rule. The Biden administration agreed to ease Trump-era sanctions on the Venezuelan oil industry on Wednesday after the country's leaders signed an electoral roadmap agreement uh, expected to lead to more democratic elections in 2024. The Venezuelan government, led by socialist dictator uh, Nicolas Maduro, signed the agreement and, in turn, the U.S. Department of Treasury Office of Foreign Assets Control issued four general licenses suspending some, but not all, sanctions imposed under the Trump administration in 2019. The sanctions were lifted as uh, fighting in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas continued, putting oil prices and supply in jeopardy. The announcement also comes as Senator Kevin Kramer introduced a bill that would ban the purchase of fossil fuels from Venezuela and Iran. The idea of importing oil from our adversaries is a complete slap in the face of working Americans, Kramer said. Gas prices have remained high since Biden took office as Saudi Arabia has cut oil production and the war in Ukraine has hurt supply. At the same time, Biden has slashed approvals of new leases for gas and funneled billions toward a transition to green energy. We'll again continue to follow that story. That story, rather. Former Trump attorney Jenna Ellis has pleaded guilty to intentionally interfering in the election process in the state of Georgia. On Tuesday, Ellis's attorney informed Judge Scott McAfee that Ellis intended to plead guilty to aiding and abetting false statements in writing, and both were present in the courtroom hearing where a teary-eyed Ellis, 38, read from a prepared, typed statement admitting her fault. As an attorney who is also a Christian, I take my responsibilities as a lawyer very seriously, and I endeavor to be a person of sound moral and ethical character in all my dealings, Ellis said in the courtroom. In the wake of the 2020 presidential election, I believe that challenging the results on behalf of President Trump should be pursued in a just and legal way. End quote. I endeavored to represent my client to the best of my ability, she continued, saying she worked closely with other lawyers who provided her with information that she then told the media. What I did not do, but should uh, have done, was uh, make sure the facts 
uh, that the other lawyers alleged to be true were in fact true. In the uh, frenetic pace of attempting to raise challenges to the election in several states, including Georgia, I failed to do my due diligence. She was charged with and subsequently pled guilty to a felony count of aiding and abetting false statements and writings. It carries a minimum of one year in prison. As part of the plea deal, Ellis will have uh, to serve five years probation and pay $5,000 in restitution to the Georgia Secretary of State within 30 days. U.S. Customs and Border Protection, their sources confirmed a Fox News story that uh, there have been more than 23,000 known gotaways since the new fiscal year began October 1st and over 1.5 million since President Biden took office. On Friday, CBP released a memo warning staff that individuals inspired by or reacting to the current Israeli-Hamas conflict may attempt to travel to and from the area of hostilities in the Middle East via circuitous transit across the southwestern border. The memo specifically mentioned Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and the Popular Front for the liberation of Palestine and Hezbollah. Border security and immigration expert Laura Reese blamed the Biden administration for open border policies, potentially attracting bad actors to the U.S. Secretary Mayorkas of Homeland Security, unfortunately, has directed ICE to not arrest, not investigate, not detain a lot of the many illegal aliens here. And Americans shouldn't want to for a terror attack to happen for the Biden administration to act, she warned. Well, thousands of special interest aliens from numerous countries, including the Middle East, have been arrested by Border Patrol agents while attempting to cross the U.S. southern border illegally over the last two years, according to internal customs and border protection data. Special interest aliens are people from countries identified by the U.S. government as having conditions that promote or Uh, protect terrorism or potentially pose some sort of national security threat to the U.S. Tom Homan told Fox News earlier in the month, the American people need to understand we can't really properly vet all these people because some of these countries they come from. Uh, There are no records. uh, So unless they ran across them on the battlefield, unless there were some sort of technology in that country, a lot of these people from these countries that sponsor terror, we don't know who they are. He used more colorful language, uh, but uh, he made the point that we don't know who they are. Former Director for National Intelligence John Radcliffe told Hannity on Monday, there's been a 7,000% increase in suspects from the terror watch list apprehended in the Biden administration versus the previous administration, adding they're coming from countries like Syria, Lebanon, Iran, and Yemen. This operation has been planned by Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran for the better part of a year, he said. They would have already sent their bad actors here. They would have likely taken advantage of an open border under the administration. Meanwhile, Mayorkas was um, asked whether those terror watch suspects that were apprehended have been released into the country. And his answer under oath was, I don't know. We don't know where they are. It just really underscores the idiocy of how they um, have approached this problem. Mr. Um, uh, the, the former director, John Radcliffe, added. Uh, how much time did you say I have there? I'm out of time. All right. Well, 
We'll continue um, to discuss more news uh, in the Portland audience. For those of you who are with us from Seattle, you're signing off. I want to thank Pedro Bartes for producing and engineering. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Portland, stick around. There's more to come. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a sweeping first-of-its-kind analysis published by the think tank Texas Public Policy Foundation concludes that electric vehicles would cost tens of thousands of dollars more if not for generous taxpayer-funded Incentives. According to the TPPF report, authored by energy experts Jason Isaac and Brent Bennett, the average model year 2021 EV would cost approximately $48,698 more to own over a 10 year period without the staggering $22 billion in taxpayer funded handouts that the government provides to electric car manufacturers and owners. The analysis factors in federal fuel efficiency programs, electric grid strain, the direct state and federal subsidies. It's not an overestimation to say that the federal government is subsidizing EVs to a greater degree than even wind and solar electricity generation and embarking on an unprecedented endeavor to remake the entire American auto industry, the report states. Well, despite these massive incentives, EVs are receiving a tepid response from the majority of Americans who cannot shoulder their higher cost. It's time for federal and state governments to stop driving the American auto industry off an economic cliff and to allow markets to drive further improvements in cost and efficiency, the report went on to say. Well, the editor-in-chief of a prominent life science journal, E-Life, small e, capital L, Life, was fired this week after sharing a satirical article ridiculing Israel's treatment of the Palestinian people in its war against Hamas. Michael Eisen announced on the social media platform X on Monday that eLife had fired him for sharing an article from satire site The Onion and praising its criticism of Israel's military response to Hamas terrorist attack. Eisen, a geneticist at the University of California who is Jewish, wrote, I have been informed that I am being replaced as the editor-in-chief of eLife for retweeting a, um, a The Onion piece that calls out indifference to the lives of Palestinian civilians. Eisen shared the article on the 13th of October, which featured the headline, Dying Gazans Criticized for Not Using Last Words to Condemn Hamas, end quote. In the same post, he, com- he commented, The Onion speaks with more courage, insight, and moral clarity than the leaders of every academic institution put together. I wish there were a The Onion University, end quote. Well, the next day, Eisen clarified his statement, noting how horrified he was over Hamas's attack on Israel, but also horrified by the resulting treatment against the Palestinian people. He wrote, every sane person on earth is horrified and traumatized by what Hamas did and wants um, it to never happen again. Well, that statement, quite uh, frankly, is not true. There are those who celebrated what happened, but Continuing with his quote, all the more so as a Jew with Israeli family, but I am also horrified by the collective punishment already being meted out on Gazans and the worst that it is about to uh, is about to come. In a follow up post, Eisen added, the onion is not making light of the situation and nor am I. These articles are using satire to make a deadly serious point about this uh, horrific tragedy. A Marine veteran whose Christian nonprofit ministers to children across the globe who've experienced trauma said he was warned to not visit the children in Gaza during his organization's trip to Israel, or he would likely be kidnapped or killed by terrorists in the region. And I thought to myself, you're telling me that they would rather hate what they perceive as their enemy than love their children and get them help. 
That really shows me how absolutely backwards this is, Victor Mark. Uh, Marx uh, told Fox News Digital in an interview. His organization, All Things Possible Ministries, is currently in Israel, helping families access food and shelter. They also brought 1,000 lion and lamb stuffed animals to comfort children affected by the war. The dolls are programmed in multiple languages and come with music, Bible verses, and prayers that Mark says are specifically designed to lower anxiety for kids who are suffering. Mark said he... uh, Uh, wanted to travel to Gaza during his trip to the Middle East to give these same gifts to Palestinian children who are also suffering in this war. His group has worked in some of the most dangerous places in the world, even helping children of ISIS, but he was uh, told that he would be killed by terrorists if they visited Gaza. Well, the president of Grand Canyon University, the nation's largest Christian university, says that uh, said in an interview that he believes the university is unfairly being targeted by the Department of Education. And uh, other federal agencies, GCU President Brian Mueller, he was asked if he believes the federal government's investigations are religiously motivated, to which he answered he hopes that that's not the case. Well, they haven't said it is, and I certainly haven't said it is, and I hope that it's not, but that the uh, two largest Christian universities in the country are being investigated is something of a coincidence. Um, He referred to an ED probe into Liberty University in Virginia. And so is um, that a coincidence? I don't know. Well, his comments came in the midst of the Arizona-based university facing a number of investigations from the Department of Education and other federal agencies. The GCU president argued the federal investigations are tied to the Department of Education, denying the academic institution's efforts to convert into a nonprofit institution back in 2018. The department denied GCU's uh, nonprofit status for purposes of federal student financial aid, which continues to classify the school as a for-profit entity. Mueller explained that having a nonprofit status would help the university gain full access to grant writing and research. Furthermore, GCU would also have access to federal dollars due to the institution's large Hispanic population, which it can't access due to its current nonprofit, or rather current for-profit, classification. Founded in 1949, GCU was a nonprofit institution until 2004. In an effort to increase capital for the university to avoid closing, they partnered with private investors in order to obtain capital and grow the university. The university returned to being a 501c3 tax-exempt uh, university, Arizona nonprofit status in 2018, in which they stated was approved by the IRS, Higher Learning Commission, State of Arizona, Arizona Private Post-Secondary Board, and the NC2A Athletics. However, the Department of Education rejected its nonprofit uh, request, and after failed negotiations on the university's nonprofit status, GCU pushed back with a lawsuit arguing the department's decision was arbitrary and capricious in 2021. And so, It continues. Well, U.S. troops um, positioned in the Middle East have been attacked 13 times in the last week with a mix of um, one-way drones and rockets, according to Pentagon officials. U.S. Department of Defense spokesman Air Force Brigadier General Pat Ryder confirmed on Tuesday that troops in Iraq had been attacked 10 times between the 17th and the 24th, while during the same period, troops in Syria had been attacked three times. Pentagon officials said that all the attacks on U.S. troops have Iran's fingerprint on them, though there were um, there is no evidence at this time showing the country's leaders ordered the attacks. 
Um, Two dozen service members were injured last week from the drone and rocket attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria. One reporter stated, nobody's turning a blind eye to Iran's complicity. Biden unlocked the $6 billion gift for Iran last month. Before that, he unlocked a $10 billion gift. And before that, he stopped enforcing sanctions on Iranian oil, another $80 billion. So some, Jackie Heinrich, a journalist, and others are questioning the suggestion that no one's turning a blind eye. Saudi Arabia intercepted a missile headed toward Israel in a show of historical support, one hopes. The intercept of one cruise missile fired toward Israel last week by the Iran-backed Houthi rebels, the Wall Street Journal reported. The U.S. uh, was known to have shot down the other four missiles from the USS Kearney guided missile cruiser, but Saudi involvement in the missile defense actions has been unknown until now. Saudi Arabia's Patriot Missile Defense Array is supplied by the U.S. The U.S. has said the missiles were likely headed toward Israel. Journalist Anshel Pfeiffer said Saudi's intercept of the Iranian Yemeni missile heading toward a target in Israel. That's pretty historic, and it certainly was. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, she revoked laws put in place during the George Floyd riot era due to the crime spree. Well, after Washington, D.C. leaders pushed to defund the police at the height of the BLM movement, the city's mayor is now pushing a new law that would give police more tools to make arrests in the crime-ridden capital. Democrat Mayor Bowser announced the Addressing Crime Trends Now Act on Monday, which includes policies to clarify what qualifies as an illegal neck restraint and efforts to tackle drug crime and retail theft. rather. Oregon has suspended last week the graduation requirement for math, reading and writing proficiency until the 2027-2028 school year, citing its discriminatory effect on minority students. In other words, minority students are apparently too stupid to learn and therefore we're just going to lower the standards rather than up our efforts. I find this insulting as an African-American woman, but I digress. On Thursday, the Oregon State Board of Education voted unanimously to extend the benchmark pause. It was first instituted in 2020 during COVID. United States has gone three weeks without a speaker. We now have one. Not the one you thought it was going to be or the other one or the one before that or for that matter, the one before that. But we have a speaker. The U.K. Education Secretary says parents have a right to see sex education material handed out in school. Now, that seems like a statement of the obvious, but these days you must state the obvious. The U.K. Education Secretary has informed all English schools there that parents have a right to see materials in the relationship, sex and health education curriculum. It's common sense. Today, I'm writing to schools and parents to debunk the copyright myth that parents cannot see what their children are being taught. Education Secretary Jillian Keegan, a member of the Conservative Party, wrote in an open letter sent all English schools on Tuesday. Parents must be empowered to ask and schools should have the confidence to share. The letter clarifies that copyright laws cannot be used as a justification to prevent sharing relationship, sex and health materials with parents. Again, a little common sense in the U.K. Secretary Mayorkas cell phone app to monitor immigrants has allowed over 265,000 to come into the country illegally. The government run cell phone app meant to to curtail illegal immigration has resulted in more than a quarter of a million 
being released into the country. The CBP-1 app was introduced in January to provide non-citizens with an orderly way to enter the country through screening appointments to determine admissibility. The Department of Homeland Security's Customs and Border Protection Agency granted admission to immigrants who were not refugees in 95 percent of the cases. Of the 275,431 who were able to request an appointment with the uh, Border Patrol officers at ports of entry between the 12th of January and the 30th of September, officers granted admission to 266,846. Secretary Mayorkas has utterly abused the Border Patrol. One app in his quest for open borders, the chairman, Mark Green, said in a statement. These numbers are proof that Mayorkas' operation is a smokescreen for the mass release of individuals into the country who would otherwise have zero claim to be admitted. Well, Mike Johnson is the new speaker. The 51-year-old three-term Louisiana Republican is the new speaker of the House. Johnson, the current GOP conference vice chair, outpolled Florida's Byron Donalds head-to-head in a second ballot last night after Tennessee's Mark Green and Texas' Roger Williams withdrew their names from consideration. Johnson is a Freedom Caucus member with a strong uh, 91 American Conservative Union rating, and he's also a past president of the highly influential Republican Study Committee, the largest committee in the GOP conference. He's a smart, likable Christian conservative, and if you have the opportunity to hear his remarks before the uh, full House, you will be edified, encouraged, and inspired. He's good in front of the camera. He was uh, on Donald Trump's impeachment defense team, which is how the uh, Democrats characterized him. But the support he's already received from across the Republican conference indicates that he isn't a polarizer. In fact, his speech garnered applause from both sides of the aisle. As Florida Congresswoman Kat uh, Kamak uh, posted this morning, congratulations to my friend Mike Johnson. As our new speaker, he has already made incredible strides bringing our conference together. He is a good man and a constitutional conservative. He believes in we the people. Together we serve on the weaponization of uh, subcommittee. Uh, the new era of vision, faith, and freedom is here. Let's do this. Well, a massive and bipartisan antitrust suit against Google has been filed. Last month, a relatively little fanfare Trial began between Google on the one side and the Department of Justice and 50 state attorneys general on the other. At issue is what to do about the death grip that Google has built on Internet search through its exclusive agreements with cell phone carriers, handset manufacturers and the like. The case, which is expected to last 10 weeks and was filed in 2020 by the Trump administration, reflects a broad reappraisal in Washington of the common wisdom that the Internet is open by nature and therefore can self-regulate through free market competition. Well, Hamas uh, used landline phones in Gaza tunnels to evade Israeli intelligence for two years while plotting the October 7th attack. The DeSantis administration has instructed Florida universities to suspend pro-Hamas student groups. More illegal crossers have come ap- have been apprehended at the northern border sector in 2023 than in the previous 11 years. And the strike has cost General Motors $200 million in the third quarter. And the automaker is now taking $200 million hit weekly. Calling it a slap in the face, California Governor Gavin Newsom is being hammered for showing off a $160,000 Chinese EV during his China trip. It seems the UFC has forgotten about Mulvaney Gate uh, because it's participating in the Bud Light starting in 2024. And the ACLU is giving people HIV intentionally, saying it's no big deal. 
Well, on this day in history, 1935, a major hurricane strikes uh, Haiti, leaving more than 2,000 people dead and many thousands homeless and hungry. 1954, a U.S. cabinet meeting is televised for the first time. 1955, the microwave oven for home use is introduced by the Tappan Company. 1962, uh, John Steinbeck is awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for Literature. 1964, Minnesota Vikings defensive end Jim Marshall recovers a fumble and runs 66 yards the the wrong way into his own end zone for a safety despite the gaffe the Vikings defeat the San Francisco 49ers. 1971, the United Nations recognizes the Communist People's Republic of China and expels the nationalist Chinese government of Taiwan. And finally, on This day in history, 2014, the World Health Organization says more than 10,000 people have been infected with Ebola and that nearly half of them have died. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend for engineering and producing today's program. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.